If the OCD had been treated properly with therapy or medication or holistic movement and things like that, you know, anorexia was not necessary. It wasn't my destiny. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Hey everybody, today I have Laura Yokelson on the podcast, very excited. Laura is a mental health advocate, blogger, adjunct instructor, and has a master's degree in health promotion. Now you've also published numerous articles on the subject of mental health and overall wellness, like 15, is that right? Yeah, like 20. (laughs) 20, wow, it's crazy. I mean, for medium and a bunch of like big hitters, I mean, you're, you got it going. But uh, thank you for spending some time with me today, uh, talking about some some uh, personal stuff, but some you know uh, all for the greater good. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So uh, you're building a successful career and uh, want to be of service to others. Uh, had some struggle in your life. And I think like many of us who want to serve the greater good, sharing your story and being vulnerable is all part of our recovery, right? Right. Yeah. So let's go back, talk about uh, how things were in childhood, and we'll explore uh, different themes and, and have discussion along the way. Okay. Okay. So childhood. Um I can tell you a little bit about my upbringing in Bethesda, Maryland, and I kind of grew up in what seemed to be a very nice and almost perfect story, (laughs) fairy tale on the outside, but inside I heard storytelling about the Holocaust growing up Jewish, about my beautiful grandmother who died of breast cancer and my grandfather on the other side who died of heart disease. So inside, I kind of had a lot of different fears and felt very disempowered by these stories and anxious and scared. And I didn't know how to tell anybody what was going on. Wow. Um, So would you say that it instilled fear in you uh, very early, just uh, about life in general? Right. It instilled fear. And the outcome was that I started practicing rituals. Like I would kiss the mini Torah that my grandfather had given me. I would wash my hands obsessively. I would spin around in a circle on the basketball court. And as I got older, the rituals became more noticeable, especially by middle school. The main thing that sort of got my parents to act was a move across the country from Bethesda to San Diego. And this is when my rituals became more pronounced and they realized it was serious. Now, what, what do you think caused those to start? Is that just being inside your own head with not really anybody to talk to or, or not wanting to talk about anything? Or how did that, how do you think it manifested? Exactly that, being inside my own head. That was the scariest place. And because it's how I was interpreting the news around me and I wasn't getting enough reassurance. I don't think, I mean, my parents would try to tell me everything was okay, but I didn't really believe them. I didn't have um, good self-awareness. I couldn't express myself very clearly or like explain my feelings or label my emotions well. So being stuck in my head and not understanding the emotional impetus behind things 
um, was really a big trigger for my reaction in these rituals. Yeah, see, I went through the same thing. Millions of kids do, but being inside your head is, you know, as an adult is scary enough, but when you're little and not having any outlet or, you know, being scared of you know, why am I acting like this or it's petrifying. It is absolutely petrifying. And so what happened is my parents always wanted to help, but I was high performing. And I guess you could say that I kind of fooled them. I had a lot of friends. I got good grades. I put on a smile. But when my rituals became so out of control, they sent me to a therapist. And when she said, you know, your daughter likely has obsessive compulsive disorder, they didn't believe that their model child could have a problem. And that's how within the next year, I started manifesting in um, anorexia and really um, limiting my food intake and over exercising. So I do sort of firmly believe you could say that if the OCD had been treated properly with therapy or medication or, you know, like holistic movement and somatic touch and things like that, that, you know, anorexia was not necessary. It wasn't my destiny for my mental illness to worsen. Right. Okay. So if, if there, if, if someone is telling your mother that you have OCD, were you ever privy to this? Did you ever get brought into the, the therapist office to discuss that? Right. Yeah. The therapist told me first, oh, I okay. freaked okay. out. <laughs> okay. I freaked out, I guess, and told my parents and the way she told my parents, they just, um, I don't know, you know, my dad's dad was a psychiatrist and there was kind of a lot of stigma already in the family because he actually worked with people in the criminal justice system and um, psychiatry. And so it was kind of like this was for really troubled people and nobody wanted to think I could have a problem potentially. Okay. So what was your, uh, obviously you freaked out, but did you go into denial that these people don't know what they're talking about or, you know, how was it, how did you receive it? I think that I, I did not receive it well because I was in denial. I was kind of obsessed with a boy who I couldn't show any signs of having feelings for. And as long as I kept focusing on this boy and then ultimately uh, going inward and having a very destructive inner dialogue and taking it out against my body, OCD kind of didn't matter anymore because I just sort of channeled my anger into, you know, hurting myself and calling myself ugly. So I reacted overall in a very negative way. Okay. So what, at what age did that diagnosis or did they attempt to tell you that? 12. And you were in California at this point? Right. Okay. Um, do you think that, uh, so did any therapeutics kind of end before it even started? I mean, were you just battling this by yourself, with yourself, um, parents involved? Right. Well, what happened is I stopped seeing that one therapist who diagnosed me with OCD and couldn't really come across in the right way, I guess, for my family to accept it. And then uh, my parents sent me to a psychiatrist when I was 14. And again, it was kind of like a really bad experience. I, you know, it's funny because I call these bad experiences, but later on in my 20s, not to jump ahead, I went through several lengthy hospitalizations uh, for my mental illness. And looking back, seeing a single practitioner 
is so much easier than coping with a hospital setting that it's kind of funny to talk about because it's just like, yeah, I remember going to a psychiatrist in, in Southern California and it was horrible, but really I was still in control then. You know, when you're in the hospital or whatever, you lose complete control. So you were dealing with OCD and eating disorder, anxiety, all at the same time, in and out. Right. Wow. Okay, so, uh, you know, 15, 16, how were things, were they just continuing to go to uh, pick up steam as far as the destructive behavior? Right, yeah. My parents sent me to a different therapist because, like, they thought that the psychiatrist clearly wasn't working and that I would relate better to, to talking to a woman. And at first she helped me, but then the same thing kind of happened where she was like, okay, you have to come here four or five times a week and like, and tell me everything. And it just, it was very uncomfortable. There was not a healthy boundary. And she kept telling me to like be more social because I switched schools because I thought, okay, you know, everyone in my family thought, okay, it's this big high school causing the problem for Laura. She can't fit in. She can't find her place. So I switched schools to a smaller school. And initially that was good for me. And I think in the long run, it was good for me because who knows how I ever would have managed at the big school, but seeing this therapist, it's kind of like she was telling me to be social, but how could I be social when I had to go to therapy every single day after, after school? So that's why I ultimately ended up back in D.C. and Maryland because I wanted to kind of just escape California and these problems. And as it turned out, my whole family relocated to the East Coast, my parents, my sister, because um, because of my dad's work and because they just we all had kind of a negative association with Southern California. Yeah. So much to be going through it. At, at that young of an age, um, I know in one of your articles you wrote about how you became uh, against Western medicine. I mean, do you think this bouncing back and forth or and going to th therapists that weren't working for you and kind of just banging your head against the wall, do you think that you started to resent the way that care is given, I guess, in this country? Or how did that kind of start? Because I went through the same thing. I mean, I, I didn't find a therapist that worked for me until I was 37 and I was, I mm -hmm. started at six. So a lot of people go through this. I mean, if you don't, if there's not a bond or a, a rapport boundaries, like you said, it's just, you're just going through the motions and it, it, it makes things worse. It does not help. Totally. Yeah. Thanks for um, sharing that. It makes me feel less alone, you know, cause it's easy to get, to get stuck in this little bubble and think that, I'm the only one who has these problems and no one understands me. Right. But I think that that is what happened to me through Western medicine in which it was kind of like gain the weight, one size fits all approach. That was the problem. And so today, like I take medication because my last uh, relapse into mental illness was so serious. And my family wants to be sure that like, you know, clearly I haven't relapsed and it's helping me think clearly and, and that's really good, but I still resist feel inside. I have a resistance to the medication and think, Oh, there has to be like a better way. But sometimes you have to learn to surrender 
And that's what I think today. It's kind of like a blend of East and West. And I still do. I still care about living like a holistic lifestyle and try to share that with others. And that's part of my way of giving back is by, you know, embracing this blend of East and West and being a teacher. Right. And these articles that you, you, they're wonderful, first of all, but you, it's, there's such a, uh, you use the word blend, but you, you are very poetic when you talk about how people need to approach getting care. In one, you talked about you know avoiding missteps and finding uh, mental health care, about rushing into finding care when you really weren't in a position to find out what you really needed. Right, right. Yeah, like avoiding those missteps when you're searching for mental health. I think, you know, because we're so desperate, it's like, that's what happened in my family. Just to give an example, like I was so unhappy and sick that my parents sent me to the wrong hospital. They didn't know where else to send me. But you see, it's like there wasn't a referral or someone else who went there and said I had a good experience. And I think that's really important. You know, it's not always true to that if it worked for someone else it'll work for you but sometimes it is good to learn from other people's experiences in a specific program or with a specific therapist and for me what happened is you know this website just for the program just looks so good and that's what my parents saw and they claimed that it was like all individualized and really it was a merry-go-round of psychiatrists and it was a really negative experience and so what happens then is once again, the mental illness deepens, the mental illness worsens. And so when you're so desperate to search for help, um, it's possible that things can get worse before they get better, but you have to believe that things can get better. That's important. Do you feel that you had any responsibility as far as, because, and I'm speaking from experience, you, you know, you go to doctor after doctor after doctor and it doesn't work you become hardened to the fact that this is just not going to work so when you get to somebody right. that could possibly help you you've shut off and you've shut down um do you think that you got resentful of i'm sure you were resentful of, of this of the whole process when it seems like every door closes unsuccessfully i think i built up a lot of resentment definitely and you know, what happened to me is my parents sent me to a treatment center that did help me. And but I had to be hospitalized first because I resisted so much and was acting out. And, you know, ultimately, it was a psychotic break. And so but at this treatment center, they weren't focused on force feeding or treating anorexia. They were more focused on getting me clear headed. They allowed us to do yoga and exercise and talk with other people when it wasn't so much about me. And was it wasn't only people with eating disorders, I learned from people with addiction, you know, other mood disorders, and just a complex array of factors, people with trauma. I was like, okay, they get it. You know, I'm not alone. And it's not all about eating disorders because identifying with that was really detrimental to my well-being, I think. Yeah, I imagine. So when did you find this place? Well, my parents had to, um, what happened, honestly, was I was living with my parents in Bethesda and I did a bunch of horrible things like calling the police and saying my parents are hurting me and they were not hurting me, but I was, I was unwell. And so with the police came a social worker 
who then gave a list of, we were very fortunate for that. And this woman is, you know, a godsend and told us about National Alliance on Mental Illness and other organizations like that. And she gave my parents, I believe, a list of therapists. And this one family therapist at the time, I refused to meet with the family therapist in Maryland, but she had just been to South Florida to see this treatment center or learn about it. And she said, this is the place for your daughter. They're going to give her the right meds. They're going to give her some time. They're going to pay attention to her. And so I would, I refused to go on my own. And so I went, uh, my parents with this woman brought in a rabbi and an interventionist because they thought I would feel safe with the rabbi who had actually done my bat mitzvah, but I felt really tricked. I was really angry it didn't matter how hard they tried because clearly they were trying very hard. Um, and then I was sent to this place. I could bring my foam rollers, which are these exercise tools that release tension from your back. And that was really important to me. They let me have tools that I wanted in my space and they tried to give me as much freedom as possible and growing freedoms as I behaved well and improved and got clearer in my head. So how did you, how did the recovery kind of start? Did you just start building up trust and, and to, to determine that they, these people actually indeed did know what they were doing as opposed to kind of just telling you what they thought the problem was as prior? Right. Yeah. I could talk about hearing voices and stuff and I could talk about astrology and they wouldn't say, oh, that's psychotic. She can't talk about astrology. It was like, okay. Let's give her some space to talk about astrology. Let's see what's on her mind because I was like trying to read people's minds before and like memorize, I memorized all the planets in my birth chart for astrology and I was really passionate about this. And it's like when I was at the hospital, they were kind of like, she can't, that's a big no-no. She can't even talk about it. But how are you supposed to make any progress if you can't have an open dialogue? So I got to talk about, you know, what was really on my mind and share with my peers. And I think that the main, the biggest negative thing about the treatment center in South Florida to me was that they allowed smoking. And then um, because I'm a really big physical health advocate too, but I also felt like they did try to educate people on nutrition and we had a nutrition session once a week, but that was it. There was no like registered dietitian every single day measuring what I'm eating, telling me to follow this specific plan. I got a lot of freedom of choice and we got to do our own food shopping, which was like a big deal to me. Yeah. How did you successfully go from having an eating disorder and over-exercising to understanding the healthy way to do it and the, the balance and, and the nutrition part of it and you know, because it is a uh, a compulsive lifestyle that uh, mm -hmm. is, is negative. How was that with the, the transformation as, as like fitness and food is concerned? Right. Well, in addition to this treatment center that kind of encouraged balance and open communication, I studied health. In, um, at American University in Washington, D.C. I had my bachelor's in health promotion and my master's in health promotion management. And, you know, through these different um, projects that I did, I kind of was able to study the science, um, you know, but also form my own opinions and beliefs. And I think a lot of it was just trial and error. Like, you know, for a period I was vegetarian, then I got more... Um, 
limited and said, okay, I'm only going to eat vegan. And then I got really sick, unfortunately. So today, like I enjoy a balance of plant and animal foods. And that's from experience. I saw how sick I got that I'm never going to start, you know, eliminating those foods from my diet and how this, how this relates to my master's degree as I got to, you know, talk about eating intuitively. And I'm actually going to be teaching this course intuitive fitness on uh, moving freely and breathing mindfully without machines. So I guess that, you know, honestly, I think the medication does help with the eating disorder component, because I know that when I went off of it, I was really restricting and, and lost quite a bit of weight. And in addition to having a lot of blurry thoughts, um, so, but having the support system at American University has been really helpful because I'm not the only one, as we've talked about a theme in this conversation, I'm not the only one who's opened up about having um, issues. And a lot of people who have eating disorders like to study health and either it goes the right way or the wrong way. But I seem to have found, you know, a good balance with um, AU you know, my current therapist and psychiatrist and, you know, meeting people like you through LinkedIn and colleagues and friends who, you know, want the best for me. Right. You look back at the journey and it is a, it's such a grind, but once you, you get there and you start to understand what this is all about and leading a healthy life, it, it is, it's great, especially when you have, have the support. So how long was the program? It was about like four to five months um, in in the residential area, which was like a group of townhouses, essentially, but with an open space in between them in a, in a fixed area. And then I went to a transitional living um, in Delray Beach, Florida, which was, um, I was there like nine months or something. And we got like outpatient treatment at a different location. So at first there was a partial hospitalization where I was in the transitional living and going back to the residential place during the day and that I really didn't like, <laughs> but I did like the outpatient um, component because I was anxious at first and I didn't do so well, but I liked having more freedom and that's when I sort of was able to find my community at AU virtually and complete my master's degree, which I had been working on, but couldn't finish. This all kind of happened in the middle of that. I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. Um, but I think the fact that that was long-term is so huge. Now I only went to treatment for 10 days. So, you know, and if you would have seen the, the look on the treatment team's face when I said I was leaving after 10 days, you would have, you know, they looked like I had six heads, but I could have benefited from a lot longer. I mean, they wanted me to go somewhere for a year, and I truly feel if I would have done that, you know, being around peers and getting constant education and awareness, it would have helped accelerate um, my recovery. Now, I was able to find my aha moment within those 10 days, and everything was crystal clear for me, but my point is... 28 days, and I don't know how it is with food, but I think a lot of these programs are the same. It's just, it's just not that long to mm -hmm. retool your entire brain around, uh, like you said, the word balance. I mean, that is, it is a loaded word because this country does not lend itself to balance. So um, I, I just think that the, the fact that, that it was a long-term program, I think, had to have helped in uh for this to take this time 
yeah, I've been healthy for the longest time, like in my life. So, I mean, it shows that, you know, since then, so that does say a lot. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, in, in another one, that same article about, um, you know, avoiding missteps, uh, it's also, uh, you talk about how to, the need to be vigilant and assertive and being your own advocate when it comes to looking for care. But when somebody is in where we were in the beginning, scared, ashamed, how do you do that? <laughs> it's very difficult. I know that's a loaded that's a loaded question, but I mean, for people <laughs> that may be listening that have a love a child or a loved one that uh, needs help or them themselves, I mean, how, how do you take the first step? Well, I think to be a good listener is kind of the first step because you want. I mean, I always felt I had a a kind of preference for my mom, and what happened is I kind of got too glued on and dependent on her. And I think that my dad was then the always the one, we got to get Laura help, we got to get Laura help. And my mom agreed, but she kind of, you know, she didn't want to see me suffering and neither did my dad. But, you know, to take it beyond myself, I think that, like I said, being a good listener and also um, reading books about mental health and doing your homework in terms of reading about, you know, emotions because they have their own language. They have their own, you know, way of communicating that we're not aware of through body language, through like we talked about in this conversation, like being able to label sadness, anger, fear, like emotional intelligence, I guess, is the term that is mm -hmm. used today. And I think educating yourself about that and in terms of finding the right help, don't hesitate to look into these organizations like National Alliance on Mental Illness. Like I, one of my articles is, is, or a couple of my articles have been featured on their blog and in their newsletter, and they provide a whole dictionary of different resources. They're very culturally literate and, you know, dynamic. And I think that for a mental health organization, like I've been impressed with how like holistic they are. Also active minds for college students. One of my articles is on, you know, the challenges of living at home for college, especially with the coronavirus. And, you know, I think that a lot of kids are going to continue living at home. So active minds is another resource that um, just, similar to NAMI, they're just geared towards college students. So I think these organizations, another one is Mental Health America. That's part of the reason I relocated back to the DC metro area is I wanted to surround myself with these various, you know, organizations that have conferences and events and free webinars that are all about, you know, helping you also become like a peer educator or, you know, taking a one-on-one -on -one class on how to handle these issues one-on-one -on -one or, you know, practicing in a group of people. It's all, you know, a really good experience. And I wish that my family had done some work with NAMI and tried to find uh, another um, key point of advice I'd like to offer is when I talked about the police coming to the house and the social worker, uh, we met with a family therapist, even though I rejected her part of my time at the treatment center in South Florida was having an individual therapist and a family therapist at the same time. So sometimes you need that to help uncross the wires. And that extra layer of support is really important because communication is so critical um, in the family. Beautifully said. 
this is, you know, whether it's addiction or, or uh, whatever mental uh, struggle there is, it is a family problem. And right. even though we're going through our own stuff, we have to be able to communicate with our loved ones who care for us. So it's so important. Now, I have a niece that is about to go off to her freshman year in college. And what a weird, uh, very unfortunate you know, she already got screwed out of her senior, you know, spring semester, but now all but one of her classes is online. Wow. Such a weird kind of dynamic to, to go to this big university and then be hunkered down. When you're teaching uh, and advocating at American, what, like, how are kids coping with this? And I know they haven't well, I mean, they had some of their spring semester, but I mean, what's the tone and how are you helping them through that? I think kids are anxious and disappointed. They're anxious to, you know, come to campus, assuming that they are going to come to campus. Not all students will be able to come to campus. And they're disappointed that, like your niece, they missed out on some of these high school experiences. They're going to miss out on the typical college experience, you could say. But... um they need to be responsible too. And they need to know that adults, it's not normal for us adults. Um, you know, they are adults, but older adults, <laughs> older and young adults either. Um, so I think that it's a time for the youth to step up and say like, I can do this. And I think that as a, someone who is going to be, you know, working on the college campus, I think there is no substitute for having a support network. And I know that AU, for example, is, you know, making counseling more available and doing, you know, various sessions with alumni. Like I'm taking part in this uh, Welcome Week webinar to talk to alumni and share their experiences and meet other freshmen before school starts. And I know that, like, it's just we're becoming more and more reliant on technology. And I think that we're lucky that we do have that, you know, and that's that attitude of gratitude. There is no substitute for. You're totally right. Uh, and, and fortunately my niece is a rock star and she's already very well in tune with herself and her surroundings. But um, this hunkered downness, you know, it promotes being isolated and especially you're going to a new place, you're already, you know, you may be excited, but th there's also some, you know, hopefully healthy fear, but fear. And you're, you know, you're, you're told to stay home whenever possible. It's just such a breeding ground for mental challenges. We're not supposed to be isolated as a as human beings, you know, I think coming out of this, it's going to be a collapse of mental health coming out of this thing. So, um, thank you for what you do with the college kids, because it's, uh, it's such a important time in their lives. Um, and I don't want it to be tainted with, you know, this negative experience. Thank you. Yeah. So another thing you talk about is warning signs when it comes to mental health and, and, uh, challenges and uh, what are some things that you know, parents or even individuals sh uh, should know about warning signs or what to look for if somebody is having a, a mental breakdown or like you, like you had some, some behaviors start and then they 
escalated? I mean, let's just talk about warning signs for a second. Yeah, I think it's so easy to be in denial of the warning signs. And they were all there for me. I was a picky eater. I put, I was a people pleaser. I put others first um, at the expense of my own well-being. And these were sort of seen as good qualities, like, okay, she's a picky eater because she wants to be healthy. You know, she's a people pleaser and that's getting her good grades and making her a lot of friends. She's, um, you know, not putting herself first and that's courageous. And so the main sign though, the difference was that I had really high anxiety and the signs of that, I think the warning sign of that is kind of like repetitively saying I'm scared, I'm anxious um, a lot of the time and not knowing what to do because parents want to be able to give their child reassurance that they're in control, but you know, children are really smart. You know, they know mom and dad are probably not going to be there forever and that the world is a really scary place. So I think that I think that parents need to be sensitive in how they act around their kids as opposed to um, and setting a good example also of sharing their emotions and how they feel and say, you know, well, I know the world is a scary place and understanding that and being empathetic. Another big warning sign, I guess, is isolation, which is one that you had recently mentioned. And that's something that I did, isolating myself a lot, not being vulnerable, not sharing your feelings. So it's kind of repetitive sharing of the same thing and unable to clearly, consciously communicate what's going on. And then after that, it's kind of like the next step is I give up. I'm isolating myself. Nobody understands me and having a lot of anger, I think. And then there's all these different signs around food, like a warning sign, like, you know, eating the same thing every day and then trying to start to eat less and less. I think that's kind of the biggest sign of anorexia. You want to encourage like variety and, you know, good, healthy risk taking because that can be really scary. So, you know, be cognizant of your child's limitations, but also encourage them to be brave and get the most out of life. Absolutely. And back to uh, college and COVID and uh, another one of your articles is about self-care. And you, you, you have a whole regimen that you, that you go through and um, let's talk about self-care. I mean, I think that term is thrown around a lot, but I mean, especially when you get into recovery for uh, mental illness and addiction and caring for oneself, not only having the pride to do so, but truly doing it is uh, a big step. Right. Right. Yeah. So my self-care philosophy is kind of like three principles which are awaken your body, look your best, and balance your lifestyle. And I feel that in the healthcare model, especially the mental healthcare model, self-care is like you said, it's kind of thrown out in there, but there is no philosophy around it, like, or there are no resources for it. Because I know like, 
when I was hospitalized or even like when I was in treatment, I might not have been able to afford or either didn't have access to like a face cleanser. And to me today, like that's really important. That's an important part of my personal hygiene routine. So I think especially with mental health, self-care and hygiene, that word, um, hygiene, especially, <laughs> I want to reiterate that are critical because I know like when I was at the treatment center in South Florida, they're like, she's not washing her hair. She's not, you know, wa washing her clothes. She's not taking care of her hygiene. So that's the most basic component of self-care when it comes to mental health. But in terms of my philosophy, like I take it the next step and say, it's about an expression of respect for your body and that helps you feel grounded, but it also supports your self-development and your relationships. So when I say awaken your body, that can be with music or breathing or foam rolling. And then, you know, look your best. Can That's where the skincare comes in and, you know, maybe even setting an intention in meditation to care for your appearance, like even setting that intention as something you mindfully do when you want to, you know, look your best, not in a superficial kind of way, but just in a way that says, I'm putting my best foot forward. And then balancing your lifestyle is more about like, respecting yourself and respecting others and building healthy relationships. And just that sense of feeling grounded and reaching out for support when you need it. I think that's an important component of balancing your lifestyle. Because I couldn't reach out for support. My parents were always doing the job. But at the end of the day, if I could have done it, like, I think it would have been really rewarding. Amazing. Um, okay, so I admire your courage, your bravery for, for uh, A, turning the corner, and B, putting yourself out there with your writing and your teaching and just your advocacy when did that switch flip for you of, okay, I've got blame, shame, guilt, there's no way in a million years I would ever talk openly about this, to making the decision that I want to become an advocate? It happened during my time at the transitional living. Um, I start, you know, at first I was like counting down the days, I have to be honest with you, and I was like, oh, when is this going to be over? But we had a group, I had a really good therapist in like dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and body image. Those three, I took groups in those three categories. And it was a couple hours in the morning. And then I basically did writing and I did some yoga and, you know, at the transitional living, we got to meet with a personal trainer in a group or a lot of the times it ended up just being me, but we got to do like core exercises. And so I could feel the physical benefits of that. In addition to the emotional and mental benefits of these different groups. And that's when I kind of was like, I'm going to make it through this. And I started to believe in myself. And we started talking about like living in Florida. I lived in Florida on my own for a year and I did well. And then I moved back to DC because I wanted to pursue being a mental health advocate and continue my relationship with AU. And I had my family in DC or Maryland. So that was kind of the trajectory of my recovery. Fabulous. Anything else you want to cover? Uh, 
<laughs> this was really comprehensive and good. I want to make sure we get out whatever you want to talk about. So, but no, I just think everything you're doing is great. I'm uh, proud to know you, and uh, I, I wish you all the best going forward. Thank you so much. This is such a great experience being on Stigmatized. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.